celebrity Let your weary mind be free And someone kind of famous who you can't see It's time for sleeping with celebrity Hello, sleepyheads, and welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. On this audio program, we invite our guests to step out of the spotlight and step into the nightlight. On this program, for one bedtime, we don't ask them to bring their A-game, but rather their Z-game. It's a podcast where you can sleep, you can simply relax, you can take a break from stress and intensity. Just ahead, we'll be sleeping with Molly Wood. She's going to talk with me about insurance. Before all that, I invite you to settle in and get comfortable while I tell you about another show on the Maximum Fun Network. Hello, sleepyheads. I want to tell you about another podcast here on the Maximum Fun Network. It is called The JV Club with Janet Varney. The host is Janet Varney. The JV Club with Janet Varney is a podcast where our friend, friend of our show, Janet Varney, interviews women from across pop culture to talk all about their teen years. Janet is an actor and voice actor who's been on such great programs as You're the Worst and The Legend of Korra. Janet and her guests share stories about what they used to be into, the crushes that they had, the trouble they got in, and how it all made them into who they are today. Plus, they wrap the show up with a special game of MASH, which stands for Mansion, Apartment, Shack, House, to determine their best fictitious life. It's all on the JV Club with Janet Varney on Maximum Fun or wherever you receive your podcasts. And now to introduce my guest. Like me, Molly Wood is a former host of the public radio program Marketplace Tech. She now has a new podcast with the misleading title Everybody in the pool. It is not a podcast about fun summertime activity and diving boards and doing a cannonball, but rather it's about business and climate change. Molly's publicist warned me that she was spunky and possibly too interesting for this show, but a cursory scroll through Molly's Twitter feed has quelled some of my doubt. For instance, in a recent post, she thanked a radio personality for having her on to talk about State Farm's abrupt exit from the California home insurance market. I think she'll fit in just fine. So with that, Molly Wood, thank you for sleeping with us. I'm so pleased to be here on the pillow, with out of the pool and onto the pillow. I like to start these conversations with a question or two about sleep. What's the best night of sleep you've ever had? Ooh, I mean, I am a sleep achiever. I want you mm. to know this is one of the things in life that I'm really excellent at. Okay. 
I do think the best sleep I ever had was the one time in my life that I was anesthetized. Mm. That's incredible. You just die for a while. It's just, you just lie there and die. And then you're back and you don't know what happened, but you feel amazing. Okay. Do you, do you always sleep in the same position every night? No, I always fall asleep in the same position, um, which I learned when I was sort of a youngish teen and I was trying to teach myself to astral project. Do you remember that there was there was a brief period in time when Shirley MacLaine wrote a book about astral right. projection yes. and transcendent, transcendental meditation? And I was obsessed with this because I was a 14-year-old girl. And I would lay there every night trying to uh, leave my body. And I would relax and do this breathing and lay there on my back and relax my whole body and like tense certain muscles and then let them go. And I never managed to have an out-of-body experience, but I got amazing at falling asleep. Mm, and now it's my superpower, and I do that every night. Good skill to have. We will have a link to Ms. McLean's book on our show's website. And people who haven't heard the show will be confused and wonder why it's there. Molly, tell me what's on your mind lately when it comes to the world of insurance. Insurance is – so I – I couldn't be happier to be on this show because I do have a tendency to get really into, into um, extremely boring topics like batteries and lithium supply. And then lately, insurance, which is a huge part of actually the climate change story. And the, the thing that I find fascinating about it is that insurers are all about risk. They're not interested in politics. They're about actuarial tables and the cold, hard determination of the percentage of risk that any given scenario presents. And they have determined with math that global warming is a massive risk. And so as a result, you have sort of looming catastrophes because the way insurance works is that you have insurance insurers, but you have reinsurers. They get insurance from even bigger companies. And so those bigger companies are starting to put pressure on the little baby insurance ducklings and saying, hey, there's a lot of risk in the areas that you're insuring. There might be sea level rise. There might be fires. There might be flooding. And we're concerned you're not going to continue to be as profitable. And also we're concerned that the global economy is going to lose trillions of dollars as a result of global warming. And so insurance is sort of quietly becoming I would argue one of, if not the most impactful financial players in the new climate economy. Can you tell me what a reinsurer is? A reinsurer is a huge financial institution. Uh, Swiss Re is probably the best known one that funds, they're the insurance providers for insurance companies. So behind every Geico and Allstate, if they have to pay out a claim, they themselves are insured and they're insured by these even bigger companies of which there are only a couple, a handful really. These are, uh, insurance, are insurance insurance. Insurance insurance. That's how deep I go in this nerdy mm -hmm. rabbit hole. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then so then what is happening with the the insurance companies are just deciding not to be in California anymore? 
yeah, so we have, so I've been really interested this in this topic for a while. And I've been saying that, you know, once you have companies deciding that Bangladesh or Florida are not insurable, you'll start to see a lot of money start to move and you'll start to see a lot of changes around uh, how we actually approach climate risk. What I did not expect is that they would start with California. So on the Mm -hmm. Friday night before Memorial Day weekend, State Farm announced abruptly that as of like that Saturday, they would no longer be providing, they would no longer be writing any new homeowner policies in California. Hmm. And then a few days later, Allstate followed and also exited homeowner insurance in California. They said it's because of wildfire risk and how expensive it is to rebuild here. Um, Now, there's always a little more to that story, and both of those companies have been lobbying the state to raise premiums a lot, in in all states' case, about 40%. Mm-hmm. But also, they're not wrong about the cost of rebuilding and the ongoing wildfires and mudslides and droughts and atmospheric rivers that are a part of like daily life now. So if these companies don't sell insurance in California homeowners insurance do mm-hmm. other companies sell it other companies so far do still tell, sell it it's getting harder to get and more expensive um i know somebody who had their insurance canceled by a major carrier and had to go to lloyd's of london to mm. get home insurance in a, a pretty high fire zone and then the state provides insurance as oh. sort of in they're the insurer of last resort but those plans are also incredibly expensive and uh, don't come anywhere close to covering the the true cost to rebuild your home. So does this mean that eventually you just won't be able to get uh, insured in California for your home? It, there may be a brief period where that happens or where there will be parts of California where you can only get it from the state. And it will be ungodly expensive and probably not cover very much if you actually lose your house in a disaster. I'm sure that capitalism being what it is, someone will see this as an opportunity and there will be some version of this that's available and more expensive. But it could be a little tricky for a while and certainly it is likely to cause a lot of home sales to fall through. Molly, do you have a favorite insurance commercial ad campaign among those that are currently circulating. <laughs> I do, Don't you feel like insurance ads are, in fact, almost the only thing you ever see? I do. I do. There's the Allstate guy that yep. causes many accidents. I mean, I like those ones, the mayhem guy. He's The good. mayhem guy. There's Who, the whole flow oeuvre from yep. Progressive. Yep. There's um you're in good hands with Allstate with the guy from Candyman is what I the only <laughs> that's the only sort of connective tissue I have for him that that ages me but you remember that movie Candyman? Yeah. It's that big tall actor with the really deep voice and then every time I see him in the ad commercial I am not reassured because of oh. how scary the Candyman movie was. Right. He uh, that's Dennis Haysbert, I believe. It maybe yes, that sounds right. And that sounds was- right. Yeah, he also played the president on the show 24. Yes, exactly. And again, I was not reassured. I was like, he has to be a bad guy because of Candyman. Mm. I like Flo. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Flo. Okay. Um, 
now the, you're talking about the the homeowners market. Are similar things or interesting things happening with car insurance? Not so far, although judging from the sheer number of cars that I saw flattened by trees just this winter in the in the Bay Area where I live, I would mm. imagine that that is going to also start to be a concern. They're not quite as they're they're more of a fixed cost in terms of replacement compared to something like housing, which I think can suffer from everything from permitting costs to, you know, when wood prices go crazy and commodities markets are less predictable. Like we generally know how much it's going to cost to replace a car. So I can't imagine that trickle down happening quite as soon. All right. All right. Um, Let's see. Now, when you think about you mentioned a commodities market. Mm-hmm. What is a commodities market? I was hoping you would latch on to that boring sounding financial mm. term. <laughs> um, commodities, mar- well, commodities are common goods, commonly used goods, like milk is a commodity and wood is a commodity and aluminum, um, glass, steel. And those prices fluctuate according to sort of availability and things like whether there are a lot of container ships stacked up in the you know, Port of Los Angeles or the San Francisco Bay. And so if you have really high wood prices and really high steel prices, then rebuilding a house is even more expensive than it was the first time around. Hmm. So so would so then the high prices on the commodities market could affect homeowners insurance as well. Definitely. And you have this sort of perfect storm where you've had I think wood prices are now starting to come down, but you've had elevated, you just have inflation generally. Mm. So you have this kind of inflation situation. Land in California is very expensive. Permitting is difficult, let's say. Um, And these companies feel that they have not been able to, and probably haven't been. We do have a lot of restrictions on whether insurance companies are allowed to sort of unilaterally raise premiums without proving that they've been paying out claims at a rate that would actually justify those increases. You I, you could argue that those are fairly common sense regulations, but now that I think they're also required to only use historical data to predict their, to project their premium increases and historical data is just not as reliable as it used to be when it comes to weather events. How how does historical data work? Does it go over a period of 10 years, 20 years, 100 years? Probably all of that, hmm. 10, 20, 100 years. But so if you were using 25-year-old weather data or 35-year, if you, you know, if you use 100 or 200-year weather data, you can probably maybe start to normalize. But there's no question that we're seeing uh, more extreme weather events more frequently and that those are harder and harder to predict. So even if your data goes back 100 years, it still might not give you a really accurate picture. Nobody actually, even at even before this past winter, I don't know how much you heard about this and you're in a place that has really real winter, hmm. but <laughs> we do not in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we had 12 atmospheric rivers pummel the state. People were out of power for a week at a time. The trees were coming down. I mean, I, I at one point was sort of trapped in my neighborhood. I was trying to get my kid to school, and there was a major tree down on the freeway. 
on another freeway entrance on the main thoroughfare near my house. I mean, it was really like living climate adaptation because these storms were so powerful and so unexpected and they just kept coming. And nobody could have been able to predict that, actually. Is the world ending or is it just changing? It's just changing. It's not a thing that ends. I mean, maybe in five billion years, you know, with the sun eating us and stuff, that's yeah. that's really more of an... It's changing. It's going to probably change in some not very great ways. Okay. That's all you have to say about that? <laughs> well, I don't want to... I don't want to cause people to uh, experience alarm and come out of their nice slumber. Right. But things, I things will be different. Fair to seed one or two nightmares, maybe. Things will be different. Things okay. will be different. In some places, it will be a little bit better. I mean, we're going to have, we're going to go through some things in the world. Okay. I'll just leave a pause there. <laughs> people can, people can enjoy that. Uh, so what, which residents of, of which states uh, should sleep the best? Let's put it that way. There is this sort of interesting body of research. You can definitely uh, find yourself online looking up climate havens mm. and places that are going to uh, experience better or worse weather. You, I wouldn't have said, actually, like I said, even a year ago, I wouldn't have said that California would be as at risk as it is. But certainly wildfires have been a big problem. Um, unexpected storms, mainly because we don't have the infrastructure. So when... Uh, journalists or even insurance companies make these lists of places that are better, they often consider not only the actual weather. For example, you you will often see like Rochester, New York listed. Mm. And Duluth, Minnesota is actually uh, yes. widely considered a big climate haven. Maine is considered a climate haven. Uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it some of that is because, yes, winters are likely to get milder over time. Mm. But it's also about how much preparation some of those places have done. Like Ann Arbor, Michigan is a great example of a city that has has attempted to decentralize its own power grid and to do a lot of climate mitigation at the city level. And so people consider people imagine that it will be maybe a less extreme place to live weather-wise but also better prepared. Mm. Can you explain what the term climate mitigation means? Sleepyheads, it is time once again to tell you about another podcast here on the Maximum Fun Network. And this one is called One Bad Mother. One Bad Mother takes an inclusive, non-judgmental approach to parenting. It's a show with a strong emphasis on mental health. Each week, the show listens to listener voicemails about their genius moments, fail moments, and rants, because parenting is hard. Biz and Teresa do not have any advice because there is no one right way to be a parent. They do, however, see you and are here to tell you that you are doing a great job. You can hear it all on One Bad Mother, on Maximum Fun, or wherever you get your pod casts. Mm -hmm. 
Can you explain what the term climate mitigation means? Yes. Good catch. Super boring, too. It's delightful. Mm. Um, so there are kind of two phrases that you hear a lot, mitigation and adaptation. Adaptation is also sometimes called resilience. Mitigation means that we do less of the harmful activities. We reduce the emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions that contribute to the warming of the planet. And we make we mitigate the problem, as in we make it less of a problem. And those are where you find your net zero plans, the idea of carbon capture, transitioning away from fossil fuels and to renewable sources of energy. All of those are kind of in the mitigation bucket. Then there's adaptation, which when I was at Marketplace, I called, I named the series How We Survive. Mm. It's a pretty on the nose. And it is uh, how we make our infrastructure more resilient, how we do things like harden our homes and commercial buildings against extreme weather, maybe whole home batteries that keep the lights on when the power goes out. Those are all kind of in that adaptation category, metal roofs, so that your house is not as flammable. And also things like um, agriculture is a big topic in the adaptation and resilience world because it's getting, it is already much harder to grow food than it used to be. And as climates become more extreme, and there's going to be, by the way, just side note, like a big bug situation oh. as climate change where yeah a lot of bugs like oh. real plagues and locusts kind of thing actual plagues of actual locusts yeah possibly mm -hmm. and so that makes agriculture harder too so the people look at different kinds of seeds uh things that take less fertilizer because fertilizing is a, a big carbon emitter and also just how to grow food in places we haven't had to grow it before so I have visited Duluth, Minnesota many times. It is uh, about a two and a half hour drive from where I live. Mm -hmm. And I find that people in Duluth, Minnesota tend to have all the time in the world to have conversations. And if you think you can break away from those conversations and change the topic or say, well, I got to go, then uh, you're going to be out of luck. And so I wonder if people who see Duluth as a climate haven are fully prepared for the lengthy lingering conversations that this city entails. You know, they are not. Um, as we have discussed, I think, in previous meetings over the years, I lived for eight years in Bismarck, North Dakota, um, and spent a good deal of time in Minneapolis. And I have also been to Duluth. And these darling people have no idea what they're in for with respect to either conversations or, let's be honest, real winter. And then there's the part where, realistically, like a climate haven can only be a haven for so long. Mm. You might have, like your house might be okay for some period of time. But if we're really talking about global scale disruptions or food disruptions, and that's, I hope, a long way out, although there do seem to be uh, things that are changing faster than even scientists expected. There's, you know, even even your bunker really can't sustain you forever. You live in California, and do people there uh, linger in conversations, or is there more of a sense of urgency that might match the disaster-prone nature of the state itself? It's a it's a little bit of a type A 
state. Well, the whole state. I can't speak for the whole state. It's obviously gigantic. The San Francisco Bay Area where I live is certainly not a linger over conversation kind of place. It's a why are you in my way at this exact moment Mm. kind of place. It's a I uh, need to get past you in order to, I don't know, cash out my stock options. I'm I'm, you know, it's a it's a rise and grind kind of place. Mm -hmm. Here's what I wonder about California is that it seems that God is trying to murder everybody there with wildfires and floods and earthquakes and, I don't know, volcanoes and invading hordes and mudslides. And yet more people live there than anywhere else. And so... Why? Yeah. I mean, also, you forgot about the absolutely insane housing prices and the housing prices, um, property taxes that are more than most people's salaries. And yes, yep, all of that. And yet, when none of that is happening, and then the brief period in between property tax bills and or mortgage payments, it's just lovely. The weather is delightful. The food is wonderful. It is actually kind of in- inspiring to be around such ambitious, smart, driven people mm. all the time. And or it's trying to kill us. Mm. And so is the mindset one of the world is trying to kill us, God is trying to murder us, but we will stay here defiantly? Or is it more, let's just not think about the mountain lions and the mudslides? <laughs> There are hardly any mountain lions. Come on now. All right. I think it's more of a I I I think it's more of a God doesn't give with both hands kind mm. of attitude. We have so much in the one hand that we can't possibly expect to then not have occasional outbursts of terrible weather or earthquakes or mudslides or fires or droughts. I mean, when we start when we make this list does start to feel a little silly. <laughs> yeah. But the but the wonderfulness must necessarily and and not to return everything to math, but the math must add up in favor of the wonderfulness in defiance of the of the uh, the terribleness. Well, I mean to circle back to where we started, it seems like the math might actually have just changed completely. And perhaps the most mathy mathers of all just told us, the insurance companies, that in fact, this place that we're laboring under the collective delusion of being so lovely is maybe, in fact, uninhabitable. Right. Do you keep a bug out bag in your car just in case? Oh, for sure. Yes. I have one in the car. I have one in the closet. I have water everywhere. I, I mean, I'm, I have some minor prepper tendencies, not bunker prepper, but multiple go bag prepper for sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And to go in the event of a, a natural disaster or in the event of things becoming uninhabitable, never to return? I think it's more, uh, I'm only equipped for brief displacement in the event of natural disaster where my house is somehow unlivable or I have to run away to someone else's house 
or my neighborhood is on fire and I have to scamper to a neighboring town or a place that isn't on fire. Now, we've been talking about insurance and the end of the world and the chatty people of Duluth. The other topic I know that you are fascinated by is what's happening with batteries. Mm -hmm. What is happening with batteries that has you so intrigued, Mollywood? I just, I had this moment several years ago. I know other people have very different revelations. Mine was that batteries are in fact the key to everything. So I like to, um, when I approach a big problem, I think you'll appreciate this. This is a very Northern Plains way to approach a problem, Mm. which is one thing at a time. I like to take it down to its component parts and then tackle a chunk of it that I think I can tackle. So when I was thinking about global warming and one of, and, and, you know, probably the biggest solution People say, okay, well, we need to transition off of fossil fuels onto renewable energy. And then I thought, okay, well, what goes into that? Solar and wind. And then over the years, there's been this realization that the the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. There's this thing called intermittency when it comes to these renewable energy electrons. And so actually being able to store energy is a really big deal. So then I thought, okay, well, how do you store energy? Batteries. Batteries. That's what powers electric cars, but it also stores energy in homes to keep the lights on when the power goes out. It also can, at grid scale, store mega and hopefully gigawatts of energy to distribute when there are fluctuations in the power grid, either because of outages or increased demand when there's a storm or a heat wave. And so that, of course, leads to then what goes in batteries. And you start talking about all these components and materials, specifically lithium in the case of a podcast series that I did. Just imagine as a longtime journalist going to your editor and saying, I would like to do an eight-episode narrative podcast series about lithium extraction. (laughs) And did this editor say, well, I work in public broadcasting, so therefore I am fascinated by this? It's a a lucky place to have been when I had this wild, boring idea. So what do we need to know about, about lithium? We need a lot more of it than we have access to right now. The places and ways that it is extracted currently uh, aren't always the friendliest in terms of environmental regulations and human rights. There's an attempt to create a domestic supply chain for lithium in the United States, which uh, faces its own kind of uphill challenges because nobody likes mining, for example, so every place you're going to try to put a mine, you're going to experience sort of years and years and years of community pushback. And then there are some really fascinating innovations in how to get lithium out of things like subsurface brine, which has an added benefit of uh, you you have to build a geothermal energy plant. And, and because that's the way that people use, okay, so the way geothermal energy, man, I have an endless bag. Yeah, I know. I, I don't even know. I don't even know what to follow up on. There's goes something. on and on and on. <laughs> anyway, there are some parts of America and the Earth's crust overall that are really, really like below sea level. And there's this superheated brine from the center of the Earth that's very close to the Earth's crust. And when you extract that brine, it's so hot that it generates energy. And so in the process of building a geothermal power plant to harness that energy, you have this waste stream of brine that's now cooler because you've extracted all the heat and made it into energy. And it's full 
in a lot of cases, of other minerals, including lithium. So there's actually this area called the Salton Sea uh, in the Imperial Valley in Southern California, kind of like by Palm Springs, where there is an incredibly rich brine deposit that's just chock full of lithium. And there are all these companies trying to figure out how to extract the lithium from this like super gnarly, messy, toxic brine. Is it is the is the brine in the Salton Sea or is it far below the surface of the earth where that's located? It's below the surface of the earth, yeah. But it's not as far as you would think. I think it's I can't remember. It's been a while since I was out there, somewhere between 700. And I, you know what? I'm not going to make up numbers because they won't be true. Well, if you made up some numbers, what would they be? I would, I'm sort of inclined to say that it's 700 to 2,000 feet, not okay. even 2,000 feet, 700 feet below the Earth's crust. So not, not like it's not like digging for oil. Like it's kind of right there. So if you went down and got it, Mm-hmm. You meaning some company that got permission. I don't think you're going to go get it. But if if a company went down and got the brine, what would it take to turn that into lithium and turn that into more batteries? So companies are already going and getting the brine. There's one, um, Berkshire Hathaway has seven power plants out there that are currently producing geothermal energy. Um, and then there's a company called Energy Source, which has an existing power plant that's all also producing geothermal energy, and they're extracting this brine. And so then in recent years, as it's become clear that there's this additional uh, much-needed revenue stream there, they're trying to figure out technology to extract the lithium from the brine. That is trickier than it sounds, because apparently this brine is so full of other uh, minerals that it's just it, it tears things up for lack of a better way to put it. It's just really hard to work with. It clogs up your pipes. It turns everything kind of yellow. It's just messy and stinky, and it's hard to get the lithium out. But there have been various startups and efforts to figure out technology for extracting that lithium. And then once you have the lithium, it comes out in liquid form that looks a little bit like water. And it has to be super purified and processed in order to be battery grade. And then it can be uh, transformed into batteries. Okay. Into the inside of batteries, not like you know, you still need all the other battery stuff. So does that are we running out of stuff to make batteries with, and therefore we're going to run out of batteries? We are constrained around the stuff that we need to make batteries, um, and it's not just lithium. Lithium is super abundant. Actually, it's not that's not rare. It's just that we don't necessarily extract enough of it and we don't have efficient ways to extract it so far. There are other materials in batteries like cobalt, which is rare and primarily mined in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo under extremely horrific conditions mm. that a lot of companies are trying to figure out how to replace cobalt completely in batteries. And then there's nickel which some argue some people argue that we is even more constrained than lithium and there are some folks who want to try to get that from like asteroids because it is harder to get wait what <laughs> how do you get it from I mean, asteroids i know that's not a this is not a near future solution okay. but there there are a lot, there are, there are efforts to discuss 
uh, in, in, you know, the next couple of decades, asteroid mining for the types of metals that we do and likely will continue to need for making batteries. There's talk about going up to asteroids and getting lithium so we could have batteries? Nickel. It'd be, it'd be mostly nickel and maybe cobalt. Okay. We have plenty of lithium here. I mean, even the ocean is full of lithium. It's just hard to process. Um, I have some information on uh, what is what L. I have some information on what components are in the shallow brine beneath Searles Lake, California. Would you like to guess what some of these are? Man, uh, well, is there lithium? There's lithium. Yes. Okay. Um, is there uranium? I don't see uranium on the list. I think in the Salton Sea there was some uranium in that brine, and so for a little while people thought that they were going to – or a plutonium. Anyway, one of the ones that is used in nuclear oh, yeah. weapons development and energy. Um, zinc, maybe? Iron? I'm seeing borax, oh. potash, bromine, phosphate, soda ash, and sodium sulfate. Hmm. Fascinating. I thought borax was that stuff you buy in Chinatown to kill ants. Yeah, I thought I thought it was involved a twenty mule team. Yeah, I might be thinking of something else. (laughs) Hmm. There's a lot of stuff in there, Brian. Turns out there's a lot of stuff, huh? Do you do you follow any stories where things are getting uh, so much better? As opposed to insurance being abandoning the state of California and us running out of batteries and my phone running out of juice. Yeah, those are issues. I do think that a lot of things are getting better, actually. I, I We are seeing a massive deployment of solar power across the country. The um, Inflation Reduction Act and actually the CHIPS Act and the Infrastructure Bill, all three of them contain massive subsidies for renewable energy deployment, for electrification technologies, even for domestic battery sourcing that have been genuinely impactful. And I see people I see people coming up with ideas in the startup space that are remarkable and maybe not all of them are going to work and and they range from everything from, you know, fusion energy to mushroom leather to HR software that rewards employees for leasing electric bikes. Hmm. But all of those things, especially put together from the tiny to the large, do add up, I think, to significant change. Would you recommend our listeners get a hold of some climate legislation to read at bedtime for falling asleep? Absolutely. And you know what you can do that's kind of fun that I've been doing and again, this is coming through my special filter <laughs> with respect to fun. Yes. But you can feed the legislation in chunks to ChatGPT and ask it to summarize it for you. Oh, does and it do a good job of that? It is very useful. Wow. I mean, if you want to go to sleep faster, just read the legislation as is. It's pretty great when it gets into the the tariff structures in particular. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's happening with the tariff structures? Well, just the, the tariff structures and the taxation rates. So one of the things that, wow, again, what a deep bag. I had no idea. The Inflation Reduction Act in particular um, 
changes tons of tax subsidies in the existing tax code. And for example, one of the things that's incredibly impactful that I don't think a lot of people realize is that let's say you want to um, finance a renewable energy project. Sure. If you decide you want to do that in your town or like community solar, maybe you want to put it on top of a pizza hut and, you know, everybody in town can benefit from those green electrons, then you are eligible for a tax subsidy of 6%. But if you uh, hire local labor at prevailing weights, rates, wages, basically if you just pay them well, mm-hmm. then those subsidies go up to 15 and even as high as 30%. And they last forever. I've had crypto guys come and tell me that they're thinking about getting into clean energy because the subsidies are so attractive in these packages. Well, if anyone can think of good investments, it's crypto guys. <laughs> they're good at making money in a hurry <laughs> and then getting out with the rest of us leaving the bags, I guess. <laughs> they smell the blood in the water, but in a good way. Something. It's fascinating. Um, so, so you've been looking at insurance, and you've been looking at um, batteries and lithium mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the the work you're doing now, and in the 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 uh, sort of granular uh, topics that that you're paying attention to. Um, what else have you been have you been paying special attention to these days as you look at our changing world? I am primarily, uh, I am focused on solutions. And so what I'm trying to find is conversations about solutions wherever I can. So I have, I did interview a real estate agent and an interior designer about what homeowners are looking for and the ways that they're doing sort of eco-friendly remodels and how that can contribute to higher uh, prices for their houses and quicker selling times. Mm -hmm. That's how we came to the insurance conversation also. Um, I have an episode coming out about 401ks (laughs) Mm. (laughs) because, again, very boring, highly impactful topic. And there are a couple of startups that are trying to replace 401k options at companies. But I did do, you know, and I did an episode about shopping. There are a couple of, um, there's a, a website and a browser extension, like when you're shopping on Amazon and Target, that will just suggest more sustainable alternatives to the things that you're already buying. So I'm just sort of trying to find, and and eventually I'll be talking about hydrogen airplanes, and uh, I'm obsessed with all things mushroom and mycelium network and fungal bioreactors. <laughs> it is a really interesting show, I promise. <laughs> it's well, this is this is what's what I'm realizing is that these topics that you that you are obsessed with seem boring. But if you think about them long enough, they become secretly incredibly interesting. They do. You would not believe the stuff that mushrooms can do. It is amazing. What is a fungal bioreactor? A fungal bioreactor is when someone takes a thing, and that thing could be discarded construction material or the sort of like sugary wastewater that comes from a brewery, and then they sick some mushrooms on it in a box— and then they call that a bioreactor. I had to finally ask somebody, when you say bioreactor, do you just mean a box where mushrooms are eating stuff? And they said yes. And then the mushrooms transform the thing 
into something else. So there's one company that is um, doing this with construction materials, like I said, and the mushrooms are actually able to break down the toxins in, you know, tar shingles and pieces of concrete and kind of all of this like nasty construction waste and then reconstitute it into non-toxic building materials. Or in the case of the sugary wastewater from the brewery, the fungal process, the process of mushrooms breaking it down, turns it into a flour, like a mushroom-based flour that you can use instead of wheat flour that's gluten-free and actually much easier to digest. Final question. Can you tell me the last three books or articles that you have read? <laughs> Do I have to? No. <laughs> okay. I, at this exact moment, am reading a book about <laughs> boards. Boards? Boards of, di- boards of directors. Boards that you're reading a book about boards of directors. But I'm also reading... This implies somebody set out and wrote a book about... This implies that somebody wrote a book proposal and submitted it for their book about board of directors, <laughs> boards of director. And then somebody at a publisher said, yes, let's do this. And then Molly <laughs> said, I'm going to read that. I need that. <laughs> I just I just joined a nonprofit board and I'm on the board of a startup <laughs> invested in it. And I thought I should probably know what I'm doing here. <laughs> okay, so the board's book. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, have just actually have been rereading this science fiction book called The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson, mm-hmm. which is all about nanotechnology, which is super interesting. That's super interesting. Um, and then I read a book called A Half-Built Garden, Garden, which is also a climate science fiction book about first contact with aliens. That's super interesting because I have a sort of side hustle project called Futureverse where we interview authors about their climate sci-fi and how they're imagining climate solutions. That episode has not posted yet, but we just interviewed the author. Do you think all these UFOs are really from space? I mean, did you see that whistleblower story? Yes. I feel like we should be talking more about that. That is legitimately interesting. It's not the topic for this program, but I think it's a very important topic. Right. It's got to be. Come on. Just again, mathematically, like you know that Swiss Re has done the actuarial table. And mathematically speaking, aliens are a certainty. Right. It all comes back to insurance. Everything does. Molly Wood's podcast is called Everybody in the Pool. And in that pool, you can find insurance and lithium, and fungal bioreactors. Molly, night-night. Night-night. Well, sleepyheads, I hope you enjoyed learning about insurance and batteries and California as much as I did. You know, something I like to do at the end of my day is make a mental catalog of things that I experienced and or learned that day. So if you don't mind, I'm going to make a list of takeaways from my conversation with Molly Wood right now while it's fresh in my mind. 1. Historical data isn't as predictive as it used to be 
historically. 2. Duluth, Minnesota and Ann Arbor, Michigan are both climate havens. 3. There are many minerals in subsurface brine. 4. Batteries are the key to everything. And finally, Swiss Re has run actuarial tables on extraterrestrials. Oh, okay. I'm going to turn in here myself. Thank you for sleeping with me and my guest, Molly Wood. You can follow Sleeping with Celebrities on Twitter and TikTok using the handle at sleepwithcelebs. Our Instagram handle is at sleepwcelebs. Our email is sleepwithcelebs at maximumfun.org. Music provided by The Winterbowers. Social media assistance provided by Charlie Moe. Our production intern is Clara Flesher. This show was senior produced and edited by Laura Swisher. Swish. Sleeping with Celebrities is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Night-night. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist-owned. Audience-supported.